The presenting sponsor of Moon Tower Soccer is FVF Law. To find out what makes FVF a different kind of injury law firm, you can visit FVF.law. Hello, friends, and thanks for listening to Moon Tower Soccer. This week, we're going to review Austin's very tough road loss to Houston. Uh, if, <laughs> if you don't want to listen to that part, I honestly don't blame you. I think it'll be interesting, but do still listen to the episode because we're also going to talk to High Performance Director Dave Tinney. Um, that interview was, was really, really great, and so I'm looking forward to you guys hearing that. We're also going to preview Austin's two matches this week and then cover a few other interesting bits of Austin FC news. My name is Landon Cottom, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Jeremiah Bentley. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremiah Bentley, and I was a part of the rolling road trip for that Houston performance. And I think the best thing that I can say about this trip is that I would highly recommend Maxine's Cafe and Bakery in Bastrop, Texas, because they make a really <laughs> great, they make a really great uh, biscuit with sausage, gravy, bacon, and egg breakfast and at 9 in the morning on Saturday. That was probably the highlight of my day. Well, maybe I'll just drive out there this weekend to try it out then. It's totally uh, worth how, it. How did, how did the museums go? So we did not make a museum because breakfast took a long time. So we went, <laughs> we made it to NASA, which was which was great. If you're a 12-year-old boy, like NASA is pretty much the perfect place to go. Absolutely. Um, and then we went to this Discovery Green, which is this big urban park right next to the convention center in Houston. Um, but I described it as a big urban park in a big city. And so... When my son got there and it wasn't Central Park, he was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> and I'm like, son, if if Central Park is your standard for all urban parks, you're pretty much always going to be disappointed, no yeah. matter where you visit. <laughs> I don't. Did you did you check that out when you were there? No, we didn't. We didn't go there. Okay, cool. No, it's good. It's just like a big park with like sculptures and exhibits and you know learning areas and things like that. But it's not Central Park. <laughs> so. Let's let's get to the game. We're going to move through this pretty quickly. I know most people probably don't want to think about it or talk about it anymore. Is this, I know we've said this before, but is this the worst game all season? To date, yes. I mean, I think, right, we were both, we were tied for last. Uh, we've beaten Houston before. And just the way the game unfolded, you know, the fact that, so, I was on the Moon Tower Soccer Twitter account. And I posted one video. I don't even know if it got posted, but I was trying to post like the Austin fans doing like Matthew McConaughey, you know, oh, thing yeah. in the first minute. And then before that video was even shot or uploaded, like Houston had already scored. I, I missed the first goal <laughs> in real time. Cause like, well, surely they're not going to score in the first 45 seconds. And then they did. And then it, it just kind of went downhill from there. Yeah. You mentioned the context around this game. And I think that, definitely would tip the scales but i think just the game itself is probably the worst performance austin has had i think if you look at games early in the season throughout the season there was always some reason some excuse that we could kind of pin a certain thing on okay well this like this game didn't go well but this looked good this guy looked good if we can get this guy healthy and bring in this signing in the summer this team's going to look better and in this game, I struggle to find a single ray of hope, really. Like, I did not see, I don't, I don't think there's one player whose performance I think was good at all. I can't think of more than one or two bright moments. I think there were two shots on target the whole game. And so it's just, it was just terrible. Uh, and we were talking about this before we recorded, but 
usually when I watch it the second time through, I'm a little bit calmer and I can like more clear headed and I don't get as emotional about the game as I'm watching it the second time. And I'm a bit more analytical brain at that point. This time I got angry all over again, watching the mistakes that led to these goals. And it was just so frustrating to watch. Yeah. And even in the post game, it was, uh, we talked about this before too. It was the feistiest Josh Wolf. Yeah. We had seen, you know, no doubt. Um, and there was a lot of, I guess the first time he'd like directly talked about players and their performances. I mean, I don't remember that for sure that he hasn't before, I mean, but he that specifically harshly, talked about Pereira. Sure. That harshly. Yeah. 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 So he specifically talked about uh, Pereira and how he was unprepared. Was there anybody else he, he mentioned there? Uh, he called out Pochettino. Because those are the two that got pulled at halftime, Pereira and Pochettino. He said Pochettino was essentially was just doing his own thing and just wasn't following the game plan, wasn't playing the position he was asked to play and was just kind of doing whatever he wanted to do. So Wolf yanked him at halftime. But I think those are the main two that he called by name for sure. And then one other thing I thought was interesting in that press conference uh, about Josh specifically is, you know, Mark Turner asked him about players on the field not calling out other players and he was yeah. very open about that too what you think about that yeah no it's i think it's a, an interesting thing that we haven't really talked about much this season but i think for the first on the first goal you saw you saw stuver shouting in the direction of of uh ring and Pereira, and you don't really see stuver do that much which is maybe not a great thing like like a lot of really great teams, a lot of really great keepers used to seeing them kind of yelling at the defense. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting thing to point out and made me think of how we hadn't really seen that for many players this season, except for kind of the main few that you're used to doing it. Yeah. It's like, as somebody who's spent a lot of time watching the national team with Tim Howard, you know, Tim Howard was yeah. <laughs> never afraid to specifically call out of his defense, you know, whether they were actually at fault or not. And he had plenty of, there are plenty of reasons that Tim Howard had to be mad at his defense usually <laughs> when they were playing. But yeah, that is a very different um, approach for sure. So, okay, on the first goal, do you want to talk about maybe, do you want to talk through the, at least the first couple goals here? Yeah, we can go through all three of them just very quickly and essentially just say what the Austin players did poorly to, like, I, I don't want to take anything away from Houston because there were, some pretty decent performances by their players and some decent moments by their players, but none of these goals had to happen. Like none of them needed to happen. And so on the first one, um, Darwin Quintero has the ball at the top of the box. Danny and ring both try to put in tackles on him. The ball goes between Danny's legs. He steps up, puts the ball between Cascante's legs on the shot, Stuver uh, it gets down onto the ground and saves it. And then Jimenez probably wasn't urgent enough rushing out to Dorsey, who hits the ball really hard near post. Uh, Stuver, who is recovering from the save, gets over there and probably doesn't have his feet set well enough. And so the ball hits him right in the hands, right in front of his chest, but he falls backwards and the ball still goes in. And so I think there's several moments where that could have been stopped or could have been a little better and it just wasn't. And then the second I, goal, I was sorry, gonna, before, go ahead. before that I was, you know, on Stuver's that ball hit the, did he deflect it off the post? It he hit his hands, post, but in, and then yeah. hit like the inside of 
the inside net on the post or maybe the post and back in. But yeah, yeah, it did I, bounce off of him first. I thought he was a little bit slow to get up. And I wonder if we're seeing a little bit of the, uh, just like we talked last week, how Danny is playing more games basically than he's ever played in a season. Like, I wonder if a little bit of this, we're seeing a little stew for fatigue from like seeing more action he's ever seen. Cause like, I felt like, so you said like his feet weren't set. I feel like he's a little slow to respond on the rebound. Like, do you think that we're seeing some sort of the long-term effects of like carrying a team and playing more than he's played before? I don't know. I, my guess would be that the fatigue would be more of a, a mental one because I, yeah, I, I imagine there is still like, you don't think of keepers getting tired because they're not, running as much but they end up they're throwing themselves onto the ground several times a game so I, I imagine there would still be some some physical fatigue there so that could be part of it yeah i wouldn't i mean I, like every time i see him throw himself on the ground and get up i'm like oh that would be the end of the game for me like, I, couldn't, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't recover like the first time he went down for the ball that would have that would have been it yeah the so the second goal i think this one was probably the most maddening for me um, there was a long clearance from Hadibi, Houston center back who he had an excellent game. He was very, very good. Uh, just boots it straight down the middle of the pitch really long. Cascante is running towards his own goal, tracking the ball. I don't know that he saw Picol on his shoulder, but Cascante is running towards the goal. He could have, he had time and space to either head it like up or out or to just like kick it first time out to the sideline. Instead, he tries to bring it down in front of him and it ends up just like laying out on a platter for Picole right in front of him. And Picole just picks up the ball, takes a couple of touches and scores past Stuver. I don't know what in, in Julio Cascante's, lived experience as a human on the planet earth makes him think that he can pull a ball out of the air in that situation like that. He's, he's not Andres Iniesta. Like he's not, he's not Leo Messi to be sprinting towards his own goal, pull a ball that's falling 60 yards out of the air and just trap it on the ground in front of him. I don't know what he was thinking there. And with a guy as fast as Pico, he got, like we mentioned in the last show, Pico's the one who burned Cascante on that goal in the preseason. He knows who Pico is. He knows what he can do. And he was that careless in that moment. That one was super frustrating to me. And then gave away a terrible turnover a minute later where Quintero ended up being offside, but was wide open in front of goal and ends up skying it over the goal. But very easily could have been a second goal. That was also Cascante's fault right there. Yeah, it was a beautiful assist, really, is what it looked like to me. He just <laughs> laid he laid the ball right out on Pico's feet. Um, man, and you know, we talked about did we talk last week about Quintero? I mean, he was you know, he was a DP who hadn't seen much playing time, but he looked like what the best of Darwin Quintero in this game, too, when he was yeah. when he was in for sure. Yeah, I think he only went 60 minutes, but I mean the game was over after the first goal, it looked like anyway, so he didn't need to go longer than that. Um, the third goal comes in the 64th where Austin FC got their best chance. Um, it was a transition play. I think, uh, Burhalter takes the ball off of one of their midfielders, plays a long ball up the right side to Redes. Redes brings the ball down, puts in a hard, like waist high cross to Cecilio who's streaking into the box. 
Cecilio gets a foot to it, hits the keeper, bounces off the keeper, hits the post, falls to Hadibi. Again, he turns and finds Pico up the left sideline, plays the long ball to Pico. Lima is right there. Lima runs up to Pico, jumps, and just completely whiffs the header. And so Pico is by himself with the ball and running straight at Julio Cascante. I think it was Iruti on the back running to yeah. the back post. So yeah, Romagna had to track him. And so, and then Burhalter was gassed and halfway up the field and was trailing the play, but was not going to get there in time. Julio Cascante just runs in a straight line towards the near post, starts to kind of like turn to maybe face up Pico as he's approaching not far from the six yard box, like a few yards into the 18 yard box. And Pico just, just slots it past Stuver to the far post. Just, I don't, I know that Cascante is slow and that there maybe wasn't going to be anything else there, but it looked like he didn't even think about trying anything else. He's just, I'm just going to run in a straight line and hope someone else comes and tackles this guy. Well, I feel like he was a little bit, I, I feel like he was uh, indecisive between whether to, whether Pico is going to shoot or lay it off to Ruti and just sort of stayed in between and did nothing. Like he had yeah. two choices. And made neither and like just left a wide open goal. And then, yeah, Pico, I mean, Suver was going to have to guess and guess right because Pico had the whole goal and Suver's in the middle of the box in order to to take that shot. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where just too many times a player was waiting on the guy next to them to do something or to take care of something. And it's just it, going back to the press conference, uh, Alex Ring was talking about the parody in the league and that like the, the difference in talent is not going to be that big between teams. And so the amount of effort you put in, the amount of fight that you put into a game is going to be the difference a lot of time. And so even if you are more talented, if you are the better team, you have a better record. If you don't go into a given game and put in that effort, you're going to get beat. And that was obvious here. Houston is, they, they've not won a game. They, yeah, they've not won a game in 16 straight. And they broke that record against us. So it's not like this is a world beater team who's been killing every every other team in the league. They're just as bad as us on paper and made us look terrible. Yeah, and that the effort thing was definitely the thing that Josh Wolf hit on overall. It just even beyond the two guys he he pointed out, it's like before you can get to tactics, you have to get to like giving it all um, on the field and being in the stadium that night. Uh, I mean, as we never threatened. We never, other than that one Cecilia, which I think accounted for like half our X goals, was that was that one shot that Cecilia had. Like yeah. it, it never felt like we were going to score. And credit to Roddy Redes, because um, I think we had, we had a text uh, group with our our friend Phil West, and I think uh, was it who came on? So when Redes came on, Redes and Burhalter, Redes and Burhalter came on. Yeah, and it's like why is the team down two nil with some number nine? Like not bringing that number nine in, and then also. If you can bring in a winger, why is it Roddy Reddit? How did you feel about those substitutions? I mean, I, I understand the Berhalter one. We needed someone to play defensive midfield, and Danny wasn't doing it. So <laughs> we needed someone to do it. So I get that one. Uh with Reddit, honestly, I like I was not happy to see him come on, but I feel like he was one of the brighter spots in the game he's had much worse games than than that one and if you want someone to just work really hard and run 
like run fast, try hard. He's one of those guys. I feel like him, Gallagher or Stroud could have been one of those guys. And I'm not, I'm not sure why it was Rodney, but uh, he ended up not doing terrible given the circumstances. Yeah, he had a decent game. Why, why do you think Musajite wasn't an option? I mean, I don't know, honestly. Like, I don't know that he would have solved the problem. But, like, we've tried everything else at this point. Like, <laughs> why not? <laughs> because, like, if if we can't get the ball into the box anywhere or anywhere near the box, I don't know what bringing in a striker does. But... Like I, yeah, it, it couldn't have hurt anything either. Yeah, they were just, they just seemed really, really lost in attack. I think more than almost any time I can remember this season. So I think, I don't know, we don't need to talk about this game anymore, but we can talk about some other stuff that came out of it, which something that Matt Doyle mentioned in an article from today which is talking about how slow Austin FC is, which we, I think we answered a listener question the other day about it. That was a thing that was very obvious during this game. And so Matt Doyle in his column highlighted that Austin FC are the slowest team in MLS. And this is not just eye test. This is with that second spectrum data that I guess people within MLS have access to, but we can't see. We only get to know what Matt Doyle tells us essentially. And we're going to hear about it later when we let's put in a plug for the Dave Tenney interview. Uh, I believe he talked about the second spectrum data in that. Yeah. 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 Um, But he said that only Nick Lima cracks the top 100 in the league in terms of fastest sustained speed, according to second spectrum. So, Fastest sustained speed out of the top 100. There's one Austin FC player. It's Nick Lima, and he's in 95th place. And so our fastest player, according to second spectrum data, is still just 95th in the league. And so it's, I don't know. We, I think a lot of people have been talking about where Austin needs to upgrade. I think we'll probably do a whole show on that closer to the end of the season. Um, but yeah, we, I think speed definitely needs to be one of those, those factors that you're looking for. in a few of the players we bring in. Yeah. And somebody, I think it was Ily G and Greco from KVU asked Josh Wolf about that specifically after the game about being slow. And he, he just mentioned like, tactically, if you're playing perfect, you can make up for it. But in some ways there's like, just no, there's no way to make up for just pure speed because it covers for so much. Like you can make mistakes if you're we've talked about this many times. If you're fast, you can make mistakes and you can recover. And if you if you're slow, then you know you're only as good as making every tactical decision correctly. Yeah. And for the record, I think that was Claire Partain that asked the question. Oh shoot. It was Claire Partain. Yeah. <laughs> um all right. Hope, so hopefully Claire doesn't listen. <laughs> um all right. I think we can we can call it there on the game. Do you want to uh, talk about this GoFundMe and some of the stuff that happened after the game, Jeremiah? Yeah, for sure. I'll do that. Um, so, you know, overall, we'd had word that there's a uh, El, El Batallon, the Houston uh, supporters group, was kind of looking for trouble um, and may have, um, you know, kind of caused caused a little bit of it um, in Austin before. So there was a lot of direction for the people who were traveling, like stay together, make sure you get to true... True Anomaly is the brewery that we all met at before, 
you know, together, let's all march together. There was like a, there's like a police escort over to the stadium. Um, like we had to stick around till 30 minutes after the game ended and kind of all leave together. So like all the, um, indications that there could be trouble were there. And so then after the game, the, once people got out on the streets, like all the worst things that people thought might happen happened. Um, and ultimately one of the, uh, one of the players in La Merga, um, ended up getting jumped by four guys on the street and, uh, beat up and had his trumpet stolen and, uh, ended up like going to the hospital, not the hospital, going to go to the like minor emergency room over the weekend. So La Merga today put out a statement that says, you know, we stand for community and reject violence among football. Um, and started a GoFundMe to raise medical bills from an assault over the weekend to cover both the cost of the bills and the cost of the trumpet with, um, which I thought was, so the cool thing on this is like the extra money above the cost of those things are going to be donated 50, 50 to youth programs, youth music programs in both Houston and Austin to try to do some good out of this. Um, and so far, I think the original goal was to raise $2,000, which was basically to cover, um, the cost of the event itself, the incident itself. But to this point, there's been $7,208 raised as of the time that we started recording this from the community as a whole. So that's really good to see everybody come together. I mean, it's, it was a really bad moment. And it was like one of several that I've heard about of Austin fans sort of being like ganged up on, on the street outside the stadium. And, you know, it was just a bad situation all there, all the way around, but hopefully we'll all be able to come together and make the best of it. Yeah. And I think this is, <clears throat> this is something to, that we should be clear about is that there, like with this GoFundMe and all the stuff going on in social media today, there's folks in Houston who are helping spread this word and share this message who are also tired of this stuff that seems to happen pretty regularly among certain, certain groups in the Houston fans. We went down a few years ago. Uh, I think it was probably 2019. Uh, some folks from Austin did, and we tailgated with some of the Houston fans, hung out with them. They were super nice, super welcoming. And this one group of people, for no reason, tried to start a fight with us. And it's the same, probably the same folks or the same little subset of folks that were involved in this. There's no, there's no need for it. I've, I've heard, seen some people say that, oh, well, this is just part of part of soccer, part of being a supporters group. It's like, it's not like, why does it need to be? It doesn't need to happen. It's a bunch of wannabe Barra Brava guys who think it makes them manly or tough to go fight other people. And it, it doesn't have to happen. Like, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's a terrible thing. I think we need to put pressure on the dynamo and on the league to do something about this. Cause it's happened before it's going to happen again, but it's also really beautiful to see not only the Austin fans trying to turn this into something positive, but also Houston fans speaking out against it as well and, and helping this cause. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, there are plenty of Houston fans that have donated to this and there are plenty of Houston fans that like offered to, to help out and do whatever. So it's not, it's, it's it not a Houston versus Austin thing. Yeah. It should be a, represented with the fan base as a whole. There's like a particular segment of it that like it's kind of awful and isn't just awful to Austin, but it has been with, with other teams too. Yeah. And apparently there's all these incidents were reported both to the Dynamo security and to Houston PD. I'm hoping they have enough information or enough proof to be able to actually do something about it. Um, because this, this crap just needs to stop. It's, 
it's needless and it makes it a worse experience for people who don't want to be a part of that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to contribute, we'll put a link um, in the show notes for sure to the GoFundMe. And like, like I said, like we, like the, the money raised to sort of cover the situation has been raised. And so now this additional money is going to support kids who need access to music and it's going to be split 50, 50 among Houston and Austin. So ultimately, you know, hopefully something good will come out of this whole situation. And I do want to just say, despite everything that happened in Houston after the game negatively, it was a really well-organized and really fun trip. And we had a great group down there. And so I want to thank uh, Katie Ensign and Seth Rao for everything they do to make sure Austin FC fans have a good time when they're traveling. It really is amazing how much work a lot of people do, but specifically those two seem to do a lot of work with when it comes to those away days. So if you see them, tell them thank you, buy them a beer, buy them, buy them some food, or just pat them on the back and tell them you appreciate them because they, they really do do a lot of work. All right, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back with that interview with Austin FC's high performance director Dave Tenney. So, I I think this is probably one of the positions within a soccer team that is maybe a little bit mysterious to some people, or they know a little bit of it and are very curious as to some more specific. And I, and I think this interview really really kind of shows shows some of that. Dave did a really great job of speaking technically about it to give a lot of information, but still speaking simply enough to where lay folks like us could understand it all. So I, I really enjoyed this interview. I think you guys will also really like it and learn a lot from it. So stay tuned and we'll be right back with that interview with Dave Tinney. Moon Tower Soccer is brought to you by our friends at FVF Law, the official injury lawyers of Austin FC. FVF is a different kind of personal injury law firm dedicated to community, transparency, and client education. You can go to FVF.law to find out what makes FVF a different kind of injury law firm and why understanding your legal options can dramatically change the outcome of a case. Once again, that's FVF.law. Jeremiah, let's talk about hot sauce. Love talking about hot sauce and eating hot sauce. Uh, Teardrop Pepper Company has finally created the perfect recipe right here in Austin, Texas. They're all natural, award-winning, and we we, we can get into this very specifically and recently award-winning hot sauce has a delicious blend of flavor and heat, enhancing your favorite foods and leaving you wanting more. Whether you like the zesty kick of Golden Habanero or garlicky smoothness of Supreme Serrano, it's the best way to spice up your Austin FC pre-match meals. Teardrop Pepper Company has two unique flavors. You can order them from their website, teardroppepperco.com, or from their social media pages. So we talked last week about them being at the Hot Sauce, Austin Hot Sauce Festival. Do we have some some breaking news on that? We do. So in the People's Choice portion of the competition, the Supreme Serrano from Teardrop Pepper Company won first place in the green sauce category. We say award-winning in the in the ad copy and here's another award to add to that list. So if you want to buy some of this award-winning Supreme Serrano sauce or the Golden Habanero, which is also very delicious, you can go to teardroppepperco.com and use the offer code GOAL, that's G-O-A-L, to save 10% off your order. You can put it on everything. Don't worry about it. They'll make more. All right. We are joined today by Austin FC's high performance director, Dave Tinney. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on. 
Yeah, of course. Um, well, first of all, welcome to Austin. You've been here about a year. And just before we hit record, you were telling us that you actually played here for a year, which I don't think I had read or heard that anywhere. No, yeah, I played here in the old USISL in the early 90s while I was still at uh, Virginia Tech and uh, actually lived with Wolfgang Sonaltz, the legendary Wolfgang Sonaltz, lived in his house for uh, for the summer and um, played on his Austin Capitals team and went back to Virginia Tech for a year and then and then Wolfgang kind of helped me go play in Europe for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to come back after after so long. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I did live here for a summer. I can imagine it's a much a much different place than when you lived here. It is. It is. <laughs> um, so going back through your career, I know you were at several jobs early on in your career and then moved into MLS with the Kansas City Wizards for a couple of years and then at the Seattle Sounders for almost nine years. I know you had a few different titles with the Sounders. And at that time, I know data in, in soccer now is like pretty, pretty widely used and in sports in general yeah. is pretty widely used. But I know at the time that Adrian Hanauer and the, the Sounders leadership were, were making a pretty bold move in investing in high performance and investing in giving you resources to to kind of build your team and expand that department. So can you just tell us what the landscape was like back then and what the Sounders were doing differently than other MLS teams or other soccer teams around the world? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I think when I started in Seattle, you know, Ziggy brought me in from uh, from Kansas City and I had known Chris Henderson as well. Chris Henderson and I were both on the coaching staff in Kansas City um, in 2007. And, um, you know, I was brought in as whatever the, my first title was, head fitness coach or something like that. And, um, uh, and I will say it was really clear, like right from the outset with Adrian Hanauer, in part because it's funny, like one of the things that Austin reminds me of is that bit of Seattle just being this really IT tech savvy, place you know where almost the 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 fans almost demanded this kind of cutting edge use of data analytics technology it you know because that's where they all you know kind of came from so um adrian as an owner was really really interested in it and i you know give him a ton of credit that you know as as he actually was really forward thinking and pushing out how we use sports science data analytics technology that um, he allowed me to grow specifically our department to grow. And, you know, I think we were, we were the first team in MLS to you know, have GPS, you know, players wear GPS every, you know, every training session. Um, some of the optical tracking technology, I think we were early adopters using that, you know, the, the current VP of analytics, Ravi Ramanini, you know, we brought in, I think really early on as a, you know, in, in the analytics sports science role that helped build out, you know, a database, which I think was kind of the first of its kind, like an in-house, you know, database monitoring system where all of our data kind of went in this hub to really um, try to extract insights from. And so, you know, a lot of that is tied back to, to really Adrian really being interested in that and wanting that, pushing that, you know, and I think that's, that since then, obviously they've, they've developed and evolved that, and, you know, Ravi is now in a, in a VP role there. And, um, it's been, it's been cool to see, you know, I guess that where it started and how it's in, you know, how it's kind of developed. Yeah. And I, I want to jump to today because now you're obviously in charge of the team today and you're, you're not, you're not doing all these things alone. So can you talk about the different roles in the high performance organization and kind of what, what each of them are, each of them are responsible for? 
Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, one of my hires was uh, Corey Jez. Corey Jez came and he's our director of sports science analytics. He was with the Utah Jazz. You know, was actually living in Austin before he went to the Jazz. So it was pretty easy sell for him and his wife to get back here. Um, you know, and then uh, Chad Kalarsik, who was with me in, in Seattle, was high performance director for the Colorado, Colorado Rapids, left to come here and join us here. Um, Aki, Aki Tajima is our director of sports medicine, who was with me in Orlando, you know, has come with me as well here, you know, to oversee the, the medical team. So, um, you know, then we have, you know, a total of three athletic trainers. We have Chad and then um, Luis is a perform, performance coach, strength coach, Corey. Um, so a total of, you know, then and then, you know, some uh, associate intern roles. So a total of about nine on the performance medical sports science side, you know, here in Austin. So hey Landon, you had uh, you had a guess about Aki, right? Um, what was that when Ring scored? Oh yeah, Alex Ring scored a goal, and he ran over to the sideline and was screaming something. And I think yeah. I went back and looked at it and reading his lips. My guess was he was saying, "Where's Aki?" and was going to give yeah. him a hug for kind of giving getting him back fit. Is that does that sound accurate to you? Yes, yes it is. Yes it is. Yeah, Aki. I mean Aki from a manual therapy standpoint is fantastic, and you know Alex was carrying a little bit of a knock and, you know, Aki treated him, you know, for seven, eight, nine straight days, you know, to kind of keep him healthy and fit. So when Alex scored, he came looking for Aki to, uh, (laughs) that's awesome. Um, I don't know if you watched Ted Lasso or not, Dave, but, um, Dr. Sharon Fieldstone, the the sports psychologist has kind of, maybe, I think people knew that was a job, but it maybe brought it to, to the front of people's minds. Is that something that you've worked with either at Austin FC or other clubs, or is it something that you would be interested in bringing in at some point? Yes. Yes. I mean, we, um, we had a really, really good sports psychologist in uh, Orlando magic. Who's also the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And, um, and we're actually, we're in, we're in the process of hiring for that role right now. Right. So I think that's, that's actually something that we are, you know, Claudio and I are in the, in interview process with different candidates and you know it, it's huge like i think that yes it's interesting with ted lasso has brought it to light but um dealing with i mean COVID, i think has really kind of brought out some of these issues but you know just some of the the anxiety mental burnout you know you obviously had you know some of the high profile athletes you know stepping out from competition um mentally people you know athletes are going through stuff now in this environment that i think it, it's also an essential piece it's it, it's not an easy piece sometimes to find that right fit you know to find someone with the clinical background that also can deal in this professional setting day in day out so there's challenges i think in how this person interacts and then also it, it's not just sometimes i think people think sports psychology and, you, and they think uh athletes but obviously Ted Lasso is a good example right it, it, it can be the coaches who need it use it just as much as um the players you know I think emotionally then the, the league I mean any pro league and because MLS is such a long season any pro league emotionally it's a roller coaster and there's highs and there's lows and you know when you're hitting lows it's how you collectively as an organization kind of manage those emotional lows what is communication like, you know, and I, I always use the term having someone with a clinical psychology background, that's always like auditing your environment, right? Always taking a pulse on what, you know, what the temperature is and, and it's easy to get to fall in the trap of, of seeing things negatively when they shouldn't be. Right? So 
Um, you know, going in, there's going to be highs and there's going to be lows and how we manage those effectively. I think the use of a sports psychologist at an organizational level can be really beneficial. And you mentioned the roller coaster. I mean, just as, as fans, we, we experience a roller coaster of, of emotions and I can imagine it's 10 times as much for, for the players and staff yeah. on the team there. So, and I, and I will say it's fine. You know, looking at my experience, the NBA, I mean, I was only in the NBA for, for three years, but like what you learn in the NBA with 82 games was the way that the, the, the really best NBA athletes managed uh, the emotions of four games a week was amazing. I mean, I think, and even from a coaching standpoint, there were times where, you know, it's last two minutes of a game, game comes down a couple of possessions at the end, maybe a bad, you know, uh, bad call at the end costs you a game. And, but the next night you're going from wherever you're going from Toronto to Detroit the next night. And, and within 15 minutes, the coaches would stew on something for 15 minutes and then it was done. Then it's the next game emotionally. And like the way that the players and staff in the NBA deal with those emotions. I always kind of thought it was like, like MLS, but three times more severe because it's yeah. just so many more games in such a smaller period of time. So um, that, that was really something I think that I picked up that I didn't really think about the NBA of just players and coaches, what they go through for just the sheer number of games and travels. So you mentioned kind of the, the difficulties that have arisen during COVID since the pandemic started, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you, you face in your position just in, in general, in normal times with, with your athletes? Is it, uh, I guess, I know you worked in basketball as well, but specifically with soccer is nutrition, yeah. training, uh, maintaining fitness. What are, what are those biggest hurdles that, that you see in your, in your day to day? I think nutrition is, is huge. I, you know, I think, I mean, overall recovery, right. I think that's the, really the piece around, um, I think a lot of athletes learn how to work, right? The work part is, is self-evident. It's not easy. It's hard, but it becomes self-evident. The challenges are the appreciation of recovery, recovery between games. Like, you know, we're, we're obviously recording this where we're going to have LAFC on Wednesday. Um, and then we're only going to have two days rest and turn around and have to play again on Saturday. Like that's a, that's a lot of, of recovery. And so it's really, having the guys be disciplined enough to assess for us to be able to assess where they're at from a fatigue standpoint, being able to individualize what sort of recovery might be most beneficial for them is a massage, is a cold bath, is a cryotherapy. Um, are there certain nutritional, um, modality you know, or strategies to try to get them to recover? It's, uh, the recovery between the games. And then obviously one of the challenges here in Austin and in Texas is just purely the heat. Right. And I think there's adaptation to heat. I think there's an accumulated effect of heat over the course of the year and, and making people aware of that. And, you know, even little things like, hey, we're, we're doing a taper today and training on a Friday before a Saturday game. But it's probably best if you don't go back and sit out with your kids at the pool for three hours and 98 degree temperatures, because that's going to sap your energy for tomorrow. Right? And so and, and it's in, in our particular environment, Austin. And here as an expansion year, it's getting players to understand the impact of the heat, right? Because I think it's new. It's new, not just for us and the coaching staff. It's new for all the players. And the players really figure out how to manage their energy over the course of the week as well has been, uh, has been a good, I mean, it's been a, a good challenge, but it's clearly, you know, is a challenge. 
Yeah, I, I, I want to ask about the Heat a little bit. Um, you know, I think in the preseason that was mentioned as maybe a, an advantage to Austin, right? Is the fact that we, that everybody was going to yeah. have to deal with it. And I understand, you know, in the first year, an expansion year, everybody's learning it. But do you feel like going forward, like as the players get more comfortable with like the Austin summer, like is that something that y'all will be able to use it as an advantage against visiting clubs from not, you know, not from Texas? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think clearly it is. Yeah, it's um. I think we will be able to adapt to it. You know, I think that, that, you know, our players, as we've gone through, you know, I think that there was an adaptation. The players did get used to it. Um, it's been interesting. I think I'd be interested to see, you know, we've talked sometimes about the, the stats around teams that come in and, you know, are they, do they play, do they sit deep? They take a longer time between goal kicks, right? They essentially try to kill the game as much as possible. Whereas, you know, we've tried to speed up the tempo of the games, right? So, it's interesting some of the opponent strategies as they come into some of these hot games as well, where their goal is to try to eliminate heat as much as possible by slowing the game down as much as they can. So I, I know a lot of our listeners will have seen uh, these sports bra looking things with the little, the little yep. hump on players backs. So those are uh catapult. Is that what that's called? Is that what that took? Yep. Okay. So yeah. can you tell us, I know, I know, I think at this point, most people understand that is collecting data of some sort. Can you tell us exactly what all those mechanisms are collecting? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's a, you know, they're called player tracking devices. So you're really tracking all the movements of, of, you know, the athletes as they're going on. And you're really looking at um, their movements in different speed zones and the different acceleration, deceleration zones. There's also an accelerometer in there that looks at, what they call like these inertial movements, these short, hard change of directions and really quantifying, um, you, you end up being able to create a really good profile of what an athlete can do over a game, the peak velocities they can and should be hitting, the peak X cells and D cells they should be hitting, um, some, some asymmetry in terms of running form as that kind of uh, can, can worsen, right, with, with fatigue at times or with previous injuries. And then over time, you, you then can build these profiles to think, especially if you have you know, a particular game model in terms of what, how fast should our wingers be, right? Is there a certain band of, of um, profiling that we need a winger to be in, a, a central defender? Um, our center midfielder should be able to have high acceleration, deceleration abilities, right? As they close down the opponent, as they can, you want to, you know, get into open spaces. And so, um, again, I think, I think we do a good job of not overweighting the importance of purely physical factors in terms of profiling, but, you know, the technology does help us really, I think, quantify how much our players work and run what type of intensities, peak intensities they can hit, you know, and then, and then take that into training sessions, really try to build training sessions where we can make sure that we are overloading certain ones of those in training sessions and making sure we underload as we get closer to the game. I don't know if that makes sense as I'm describing yeah. it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And that, that led into, so I became an expert on this by reading Google articles, you know, right. Cause it's what we, yeah. and, and they're not terribly consistent by the way, just like every topic on Google. So like, one of the one of the questions I have is around like the in-game data. Like how how real time do you use that? Like, do you are you making in-game adjustments on that or is it just in practices or at the next day? Like how much do you rely on that for for real time sort of monitoring and 
the next day. You know, I think one of the interesting things is that I think it's really important to understand that more is not better, right? So I will say that some of our, if you look at some of the data of our, of our matches, some of our lowest numbers have come in matches where we've scored the most goals. Some of our home games where we've scored the most goals and won comfortably. And in those games, our guys don't really have to run that much because we don't have to chase. And a lot of times we have more of the ball. And then once you're up by a couple goals, then you don't have to go press as much. And um, so it's, it's so contextual, right? Like all the data is so contextual that, that game states matter. Right. So I think if you look at some of our early games, you know, in, in uh, Colorado and Minnesota, you know, where we had some running stats that were through the roof and some of the highest in the league all season. Um, and, and that's great. We had some other games we didn't win where we had really, really high running stats. We had some games that we won where we had really low running stats because we had the ball, our positioning was very good. Um, and then as a group collectively, that doesn't have to be a, a total high amount of running to be effective, right? So I, mean, I think Messi's a really good example of, you know, if you look at total distance, um, you know, <laughs> Messi's total distance performed as one of the lowest in world soccer because he quite honestly doesn't really have to because once he's so effective when he has the ball that he doesn't have to go chase around for it. So kind of a follow-up to that question, how... When, you, when you're looking at player performance data during training throughout a week, let's say, or during, during this recovery period after a game, how black and white are those decisions? Like, would you ever look at this data and go to the coach and say, this guy can't go on Saturday, or this guy has 30 minutes in the Saturday? Is it that cut and dry, or is that more of a dialogue between you and a coach and maybe the player? What does that normally look like? It's definitely more, I mean, it's 100% a dialogue and yeah, there's nothing nothing in sports science is really as black and white as we might like it to think right because i think let's say a player a player may have low running stats from a game and then you have to make you have to try to distinguish is the player's running stats low because they're tired or because tactically the way they play he didn't have to run that much therefore um therefore you know it goes two ways he either needs to recover because he's tired or he actually has to do more this week because the game load he had last week and wasn't good enough. So then there's other things that we're using, you know, in terms of post-game recovery and some heart rate variability, you know, Omega Wave is a technology we use to really assess players' readiness and where they're at. So now it's really piecing together, okay, his heart rate variability shows he's in a really fatigued state and his numbers are really low. Therefore, he's likely to be a, a, have a higher injury risk, right? So again, we would love if injury risk was black and white, but it is nowhere close to black and white, right? You know that if a player's running stats are down, his heart rate variability shows he's really fatigued. Maybe subjectively he's, he's saying he's very tired, then that player's injury risk is potentially really, really high. Um, that also doesn't mean he's not going to go out and still score a hat trick, right? So, um, uh, but then, you know, on, on the flip side, you can have, you know, you can have someone that's, again, doesn't run a lot, doesn't hit some peak, you know, peak intensity is all, but the game was easy for him. And then that person is more in danger of potentially losing fitness over the course of the week. Um, so it's very multifactorial, you know, and at the end of the day, um, 
there's a lot of games you you know and the, and there's always this balance i think that becomes a discussion with the coaches and how much you know how guys might be at risk depending on all the data we're collecting you know and and by all means um if a coach wants to play a player then that player will, will play you know um, and that player also wants to play but it's really i think just about trying to make really informed decisions on where guys are currently at knowing it's a long season knowing that sometimes guys are going to be fatigued and more risk injuries and sometimes it's still worth the risk to play those players and sometimes it might not be you know and i think it's there's periods where the match congestion gets really heavy where you do know that okay the more games with only two days rest then um this guy's at a lot higher risk. And I think a lot of the research, you know, in, in terms of European soccer, there's a lot of research on how much injury risk increases when there's only two days rest in between games. And theoretically, it's, you know, the, the research will show that you basically do need three whole days of recovery between games to assure anything close to 100% recovery, right? The two days is just not enough. And yet there's also times where, based on our match schedule, we have to play with only two days rest. And that's just how it is. Yeah. So I, I'll, sorry, Jeremiah, I, I'll ask, uh, this follow-up in a, in a, a general way as possible, just to not get anybody in trouble, but uh, how often do, do high performance staff and coaching staff, butt heads on those decisions, is that pretty common or do they usually fall in kind of in the, is it, is it clear enough that, that they're usually on the same page or, or is it, gray enough that there are arguments there sometimes i mean there's definitely known to have been arguments you know in in different settings of you know of course um i think it's i think one the high performance department has has to understand which i think we do a really good job of of knowing that like what we're providing the coaches is only a piece of the puzzle right right it's not the most important thing um also understanding we also do do a good job of understanding, you know, as you asked, like, it's not black and white. We understand it's not black and white. Uh, but then also you'd like to have a coaching staff that is receptive to listening and, um, and was willing to take on information to make decisions, which, you know, our coaching staff hundred percent is. And I mean, Josh obviously personally asked me to, to come here based on our past relationship. And so, while yes, I do think that people do butt heads, and I, you know, for the most part, I think you know we we have a really open relationship, and I have a great relationship with the coaches, and you know, it obviously helped that I coached Josh and Davey myself, Davey Arno. So um, from that standpoint, it's unique here. But yes, I think it's it's high performance staffs can potentially only be concerned about injuries and feel like they will be judged by injuries, and obviously coaches know they're judged by results and that, you know, the nature of that means there's likely to potentially be conflict, but, um, I would say you don't really see that here. You know, I think cause there's a mutual respect, you know, kind of across the boards. Yeah, that's, that's good. To hear. And that's good to know. And I guess you kind of live with that when you talked about how Seattle and Austin are alike and sort of, I mean, it seems like this ownership group has made an investment in, in sports science and data, that's meaningful. I had, I guess just one more question kind of about this, the uniqueness of this season with it being Austin and being expansion season. And you hit on the schedule congestion, which was, was one of the things I wanted to ask about, but like, how does the, 
how do five subs versus three subs affect um, what kinds of recommendations you make? I think it's, I mean, it's, it is a game changer in so many ways because it creates an amount of flexibility, right? Like theoretically, if you have five subs, you can press, you can play a pressing strategy tactically in a way that you just might not be able to with three. Right. And I think, um, uh, you, you can keep the tempo of things high, obviously, tactically, you can change your structure, you know, um, formation a lot easier with five than you can with three, but you know, with, from a physical perspective, I think, and, and then also, um, through the match congestion, the ability to use five subs in your match congestion, I think means you can probably start players more knowing, you know, a guy can play 60, 70 minutes, all three games, where if you had limited subs, he, you might have to play certain guys 90 knowing that they're not going to play the next game. So yeah, I think to me, it's a game changer. I think the quality of the play stays higher because you can actually keep the tempo of the game high. I think it's, it's, huge for us in a warm climate as well. You know, you'd like to have those, the ability to make more changes in the, in, in the heat, you know, to make sure that you can play the way you want to play. So it's uh, it's had a huge impact, but I think overall, and I, and I hope that people see worldwide that it's, it's actually, a, it's a quality impact because hopefully the quality of the game and the speed of the game can stay high, which makes, I think, a more attractive games. Yeah, I think in, I, I know I've heard arguments in, in like the Premier League, for example, where the richer teams will be at an advantage because they have more talent on their bench that they can bring in. Yeah. But I think in a league like MLS, I've I've really liked having five subs. I kind of hope it's something they consider keeping going yeah. forward because I, I think you're yeah. right. I think it does increase the quality of play, and then also it gives you a chance to also it. You know, one of the other big things that, that is also is in, especially important for this league, it, it allows you maybe to play some young players and give your young players some minutes where if there's only three subs, they're not going to get them. Right. Which then by the time a guy gets two years in league, maybe he got an extra 20 games, you know, getting in games because of those extra subs. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Jeremiah, did you have any other questions before we wrapped up? No, I, I just really appreciate the time and the information and, feel like I understand a little bit more what y'all do and appreciate sort of the combination of art and science, which I think fans don't necessarily always think about when they think about a high performance um, team. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also just the, you know, the relationship with the coaching staff and there's, there is an art to taking in information. Always, you're always this judgment between, you know, kind of long-term risk, long-term game, short-term risk, short-term game, gain and, and, um, putting guys at risk. There's some times where you just have to play guys because it's worth the risk. And there's other times where it's, it's not worth the risk necessarily. And, and again, that's, it's never black and white, but I think it's, uh, you know, again, organizationally, you have to be committed to that. And we are definitely committed to that. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun process. I guess that that challenge of that not being black and white is actually what, what makes it so fun. All right. Well, thanks so much for, for sharing this information with us and, and thanks for taking some time to talk to us. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I ain't got no time to let you pass. I only got one life and it's gone too fast. So I've got a All right. We want to thank Dave Tinney one more time for being kind enough to take some time to share share his knowledge with us. 
Let's jump into a few bits of Austin FC news. Some some small, some pretty big. Some of the small ones are Austin FC is opening a new Verde store down on Congress Avenue. So you don't no longer have to drive up to McCalla Place to to buy official Austin FC merchandise. You can do it downtown now as well. Yeah, that's really cool for them. And that sort of shows the appeal in the community is a whole for them to have that in addition to the to the one at the stadium. I know there are a lot of people that were calling for that um, because if you live in anywhere South Austin, like it's hard to get up to McCalla between 10 and six. And it's definitely hard to do it on game day. Yeah. My, my son decided he, ne- he needed a new shirt one time. And I just like looked at the line standing outside of there an hour before kickoff and decided that was not going to happen. <laughs> we'll order it online. son. <laughs> Um, speaking of merchandise, we are in the works of getting a Moon Tower soccer shirt made. So I'm hoping to be able to get a pre-order link set up this week. But if not, then in the next week and a half, two weeks, we should have some more information about that. So stay tuned to our social media accounts and we'll we'll let you know. I think the next big piece of news was Austin FC signing their first homegrown player, which was Owen Wolf. Okay, so for those that those that don't know or maybe are not super familiar with MLS roster rules, what does what is a homegrown player in in terms of the league? Yeah, so the homegrown status is it's it's a way essentially for the league to encourage teams to sign players from their academy. And you might ask like why would they need encouragement? And it's because you only have X number of roster spots. X number of salary budget to spend on those roster spots. And so this homegrown status gives you the ability to sign these players without them counting towards your salary budget. And so they don't, they don't count against the salary cap essentially. And so if you have a 16 year old who looks like he's going to be a really good player, but isn't quite ready to actually be playing on the first team, give him that homegrown contract. You can start paying him a salary then, even though he's still playing in your academy and then if he ends up leaving or trying to leave before he ever gets those first team minutes, you can sell him at that point and actually get something out of it and get something back from your investment. And so I don't think you should think too much about the term homegrown as as to what those words actually mean, because it is just another rock roster mechanism, just like designated player or uh, U22 or Generation Adidas. It's just another one of those roster mechanisms that that you can say. So this player does not have to be from the place. All they have to do is spend one year in the academy system and spend a certain number of hours training. And so although Owen Wolf is not from Austin and he's not even played in the academy team at all, he qualifies because he's been training with the team for a year now. Yeah. And so do you have any examples of homegrown players who are making a difference and who really have like, have been able to the club's been able to build an advantage because of like you talked about because of the salary benefits. Yeah, absolutely. There's tons of examples, but ones like Alfonso Davies, Brendan Aronson, Jordan Morris, uh, FC Dallas has a lot of them. Jesus Ferrer, Ricardo Pepe. If, if you have a homegrown player that turns into a, a real contributor to your team, it's extremely valuable. And so if you have a guy who's ready you think is ready to sign that contract, do it. Like go ahead and sign him. You you don't run out of homegrown spots. This isn't like one of our other, other roster designations. You can have as many homegrown players as you want pretty much. And so 
I don't think it hurts anything if you think Owen Wolf is ready to play on the first team. Not even right now, but in the near future, go ahead and give him that contract and you can kind of lock him in and and get those benefits someday. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, came up in the press conference about that, which I don't think we've talked about uh, too much, is that um, he will not, you know, so he's going to be on the, he plays some U17 games, but not all U17 games, right? Is that correct? Yeah, so this was a whole back and forth that day, wasn't it? So a while back on the show, I had read into some of the rules and I was under the impression that Owen Wolf was too old to play for this U17 team. And so whenever Chris Bills reported that news that he was going to be the first Austin FC signing, I read the story and said, it said he's going to be playing with the U17 team. And I was like, are you sure, Chris? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And so I put a tweet out saying like, if y'all heard that on the, on the show, I was wrong. Sorry about that. I think Chris ended up doing some more digging and got clarification that he is technically too old to be on that team, but there's essentially he's eligible to play certain games and not others. But I think there's like close to 20 games this season that he will be eligible to play in with the yeah, U17 I think it, team. I think that he could play against the other MLS Academy teams in the U17, but there are like non-academy teams in MLS next. And I think that those are the games he can't play if I remember it right. I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, I, I'm i not going to pretend to understand it, but <laughs> we did get confirmation that he does get to play with the U17 team. And I think that's maybe another thing some people were upset about is they were thinking like the homegrown contract puts him on the first team now. And that's not going to be the case. He's going to spend most of the next year, if not all of the next year and beyond with that academy team. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. And that's very much like a, this is how MLS works. So I think the big crit- one of the big criticisms that we saw beyond the nepotism one and the optics one, right, from from him being a wolf, which we just talked last week about how much we love having Arena in our academy. So I don't know why we have to treat those separately. It's like <laughs> that the fact that the first homegrown isn't um, from Austin. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is – I saw a few people voicing this opinion. Dallas Teston was one of them who – who uh, commented on my my Twitter thread with that. And he's like, I don't essentially saying, I don't question the the smart business move of this. I don't question that Owen Wolf is good enough to deserve this. He just seemed like he was maybe a little bit disappointed that this first signing wasn't someone who had come through our Academy, who wasn't from Austin and, and didn't get to have kind of the, I don't know, like the the narrative and the story of it all, because it would have been really nice to have a player come through the academy and get that that very first homegrown signing. But I just don't know that there are any other players right now who are ready for that because we only had a U15 team up until two weeks ago. We just started with this U17 team. So that's really going to be the team that you're signing homegrowns off of is this U17 team at the earliest. And so... I don't I don't know much about the new kids who have come into this U17 team but having watched the U15 team last year and the years before I think there's really only one or two guys who are going to be ready maybe this year if they're ready at all maybe they're going to be ready this year to to get that homegrown contract and maybe get some training time with the first team one of them is not also not from Austin he's only been here for a year 
And so he he came in from the Minnesota United Academy system a year ago. And so he I I think he's probably the most likely option to get that next home, homegrown contract. And so he probably would have been the first one and is really in a pretty similar situation to Owen Wolf being that he's not been here any longer. He's not been in the team any longer. He's not from Austin, Texas. Yeah, it's Sorry, one other oh. thing I wanted to mention is nepotism was the word that was being thrown around here a lot. And I think that that is a somewhat fair claim because regardless of whether Owen Wolf deserves it or not, which I think as a soccer player, I think Owen Wolf absolutely deserves it. He's played a few games with the first team this year. Uh, like I, I think that he has the potential to become a very good player as he gets older. And so, on merit alone, just soccer ability, I believe Owen Wolf deserves this. That doesn't change the fact that Josh Wolf is his dad and that they're going to be in the training ground together and they're going to be at some point, maybe in the first team locker room together during games. He's going to be picking or not picking his son for the first, for the starting 11. He's going to be subbing on or not subbing on his son during games. That is still going to be a really tricky thing that they're going to have to navigate. And I, there's no, there's no way around that at this point. And, um, I don't, I don't know that any of that means that they shouldn't have signed him because he's a good player. And there's lots of, lots of cases where this happens and it's just kind of the way it goes. If there's soccer players have to start so young that if a coach has kids, they're going to come through that system. Yeah. And you got a little bit of that out of the press conference. You know, I feel like there's a little of like, Josh Wolf drawing the line between like being a proud dad um, and the coach even. And like, he didn't seem all that comfortable answering some of the questions that, that people asked him in the press conference. Cause that's really probably the first time he had to deal with it. Um, and it is like a, 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 especially tricky thing to talk about in public. Yeah, for sure. And another thing I'll mention is, uh, and speaking of Reyna, his kid is in the U15 team this year. And if he's half as good as his brother, we'll be giving him a contract next year too. And I'd be curious to see if people are as upset about that one, given that he's Gio's brother and Claudio's son. Well, it's just in the same way that uh, Josh's older son is playing like in the first team for Atlanta some right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he signed a contract with Atlanta last year at 17 played, I think 10 games with the first team. I think he's played most of the season with Atlanta, with uh, Atlanta United too, but uh, yeah, the, the pedigree's there. All right. You want to, we got, we don't have to quickly talk about the Academy results from this week um, before we also talk about LAFC and San Jose. Since we have two games. So unlike the first team, uh, the U 15s and U 17s went, well, I don't know if they went to Houston. I believe they played against the Houston Dynamo Academy. I don't know if it was in Houston or Austin. Um, I think it was, I think it was in Houston. I think it was in Houston too. So the U15s won 4-1. The U17s won 3-0. So they continue to be um, undefeated in the preseason. And I guess if if like the trajectory of the first team keeps going the way it is, where they get worse every week, and the academy keeps going undefeated, maybe we will be like an Austin FC Academy podcast at some point. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. Um, but I feel like the the amount of you know time and whether we talk about the academy or not is sort of inversely related to how the first team's doing. 
Yeah, that I that might not be a bad idea. So we can we'll look into that in coming weeks. Uh, let's jump into those game previews. So first game this week is going to be on Wednesday night. LAFC is coming to town again. Uh, Jeremiah, tell us a little bit about what we should know about this LAFC team coming in. Well, this is the yeah one awesome thing I want to say is that like every time the last three times we've won, we've lost three in a row and then won again. <laughs> and we, we've just finished our third consecutive loss. So I feel like that we're guaranteed victory against LAFC because of this trend. Although I wouldn't mind breaking it on the other side and maybe not losing three in a row um, if we if we pick that up. So yeah, LAFC is tied for seventh in the West uh, with Real Salt Lake right now, but they sit in eighth because they're behind on goal differential. Um, did you watch any of this? They played on Sunday against RSL uh, and they won 3-2. And the third goal was this like crazy own goal. Um, yeah, from I, saw the, I saw the highlights of it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a really, really bad play, but a very MLS. I think somebody said it was like MLS after dark before the sun went down. This is basically <laughs> how that game went. Um, so uh, since we, well, we played them early. It's been a long time, but Diego Rossi, who had been long rumored to go to Europe, um, ended up going out to Fibonacci, which is Turkey, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the month. Uh which I think a lot of people were surprised by. I think people hope that he would go to a bigger league than that if he was going to yeah, transfer out of MLS. If you're going to hold on to him that long and and hold out that long, you'd think maybe the move would be to a big European league. Fenerbahce, is, it's a big team. There's a lot of money in Turkey, but yeah, I think a lot of people were surprised by that one. And then, But just in like an LAFC kind of way, so they brought in Cristiano Arang- Arango out of... Colombia, I think he's playing for what's the big team there? Um, Millonarios. Oh think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is who he's playing for, and he's has scored three goals in two matches. So he stepped right into the attacks. They continue to be dangerous. I mean, he's still got, still got Vela. They've got Arango. They've, they haven't slowed down much. They're on a hot streak generally overall, and have had two wins and one draw in the last three matches. So this will be a tough matchup, but I feel like Austin has shown the ability to play up or play down to any opponent. So I don't know what to expect <laughs> yeah. out of Wednesday night. What do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think last time they came to town, the thing I noticed is just like man for man across the field, LAFC just seemed to be a class above Austin. Um, they have been playing, I think below their, their level for quite a while, which is the reason why they're in eighth place right now. But yeah, Arango looks like the real deal and they seem to be kind of on a, on a run of good form. So I'm, I'm not looking, I'm not feeling very optimistic about this one, but who knows? Maybe we'll see the versus Portland version of Austin FC for this one, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Let's maybe do that. We've got another home game. Um, again on Saturday, which will be the what third game in seven days. And that's against yeah. San Jose Earthquakes. It's a repeat of our first ever home match, which is the one time we played them, which is a very exciting nil-nil draw. Um they currently sit <laughs> you, in it 10. sounded like it sounded like you you meant that sarcastically, but it was actually a pretty exciting I, no, I game. Meant it. I meant it. I'm <laughs> among among our nil-nil draws, which happened a lot more early in the year than have happened lately. Uh, that was a pretty, yeah, that was a pretty exciting game. That was a good one. It's also an amazing TIFO um, for that one. So hopefully oh, yeah. we, we maybe we can break something else out like that. Um, they're one win, one loss, three draws in the last five. Uh, they drew against Dallas over the weekend. 
Um, I think the biggest change for them is that Jeremy Obobasi um, moved over since the last time we played them. Yeah, Jeremy Obobasi, who scored against Austin at Q2 whenever he was with Portland. They've also brought in uh, this defender, Nathan, who I honestly don't know a ton about, but I know that he scores a lot of points in MLS fantasy soccer. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Uh, according to his fantasy stats, he seems like one to watch out for, but I think they're kind of still the same San Jose, maybe a little stronger, but still like pure MLS chaos. And you never know what you're going to get out of them in a given game. So let's hope for excitement out of that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at the lose. very least. <laughs> All right. Anything else before we start to wrap up, Jeremiah? No, let's go ahead and wrap it up. All right. We'd like to remind you to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to encourage you to come find us on social media on Twitter at LVAHero87 and jbentley underscore ATX. We're always looking to connect with fans, talk about soccer, talk about hot sauce, talk about... Oh, uh, also the striker uh, social media is where Jeremiah hosted a, a hot wing challenge with Phil West last week. Yeah, I will talk about that. So Phil, just for those of you that nobody would have a reason to know, but Phil West and Mark Bay made a bet that whoever, whether Dallas or Austin finished higher in the table. Well, the deal, the deal is if Austin finishes behind Dallas in the table, Phil has to eat 25 fire in the hole wings from uh, pluckers, which 25 is an absurd amount of wings. Even if they're like, there's no sauce on them at all. (laughs) Regardless of flavor, right? You know, so as a, uh, as a warm up, Phil got these wings from this place. uh, That's a truck next to Luster Pearl downtown. And they were absurdly hot and like they made him cry and he didn't finish them all. And I believe Derek Ensign created a uh, Twitter meme about how depressed (laughs) Austin fans are uh, after week 20 out of that. So, that would be my striker Texas content advice for this week is go find that video of me interviewing Phil about everything from Josh Wolf to Weston McKinney while he's literally crying, trying to eat five hot wings. <laughs> We'd also like to encourage you to visit the striker Texas website where I, I think just going back and reading some of Chris Bills's articles from the last several weeks, I think he he mentions this in the kind of the leading paragraph of one of his most recent ones that the articles aren't necessarily going to make you feel better, but they're at the very least going to help you understand a little bit more. And then there's one from last week where Chris essentially kind of did like was scoring some comments that Josh Wolf had made. And I, I really appreciated that because there's a lot of criticism being thrown around by people who maybe don't really know what they're talking about sometimes. And so I really like when people bring receipts like that and I say, here's the criticism and here's why, or here's the thing that I think isn't going well or they could fix. And here's why I really like that. And so, um, I I think you can learn a lot and at least understand what's happening a bit better by reading some of Chris's articles over on the striker. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back in one week with the new episode of Moon Tower Soccer. We'll we'll review this week's two matches and then we'll preview the LA Galaxy match and talk about some other Austin FC news. Until then, I'm Landon Cottom. I'm Jeremiah Bentley. We'll catch you next time.